Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day, and I'm joined on this afternoon's episode by Simon Woodruff, the founder of Yo Sushi. Simon had never opened a restaurant before when he launched Yo Sushi in Soho back in 1997. And at first it seemed like the robot waiters, the smoke extracting ashtrays and the raw fish served off conveyor belts might be too much for Londoners to get their heads around. But they soon fell in love with it, of course, and it was actually Simon's gung-ho spirit and those experimental ideas that made the brand such a colossal hit. We recorded this episode on Simon's beautiful houseboat on Cheney Walk on the Thames, and the conversation bobbed along nicely from Simon's early days as a set designer for rock and roll acts to the reason why he decided to leave Dragon's Den after the first series and even his dream to bring private islands to the masses. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Simon, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, is this your first ever podcast? No, I've done. I'm, I've got podcasts all over the place. Yeah, podcasts coming out of your ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a podcaster. <laughs> Do you host your own podcast? No, I have tried doing that. Okay. I mean, I've got into all that sort of stuff about I ought to be kind of some yeah. guru and all of that. But now I'm just another human being on the earth, ready okay. to participate in whatever's going on. Right, okay. And this is our first um, podcast on a boat, I have to say. Okay. It's our first, first podcast on any form of transport, in fact. We're usually in kind of fixed abodes. Well, this is a houseboat. Right. And it is, I live in Chelsea on Chelsea Embankment, and um, I actually have three houseboats here. I have one, is, um, one is my daughter's, and then we've got another one which we use as our sort of home office. And um, it's actually a houseboat, not a boathouse, because okay. a boathouse is a house that boats live in, but a houseboat. And they're built from scratch. And it's like a loft on the water. Yeah. And it's probably got the best view in London. It's got one of them, definitely. Yeah. And can you actually go out on, is it seafaring? No, it has, uh, has no engine, okay. no systems to go wrong. Right. We have a little boat that's moored out there in the middle of the river and we can go up and have dinner Lovely. up at the Tower Bridge if we want to. That's pretty but good. But this one doesn't move unless it's going to be sent off to have a repair or okay. a service or something, which doesn't happen very often, Fine. thankfully. You've got three of them, you say. Why do you like houseboats so much? I've always been a boat person okay. from a child. My dad taught us to sail. And I always had two real passions that run through my life. One is mountaineering mm-hmm. and one is ocean sailing. And so I've always liked unusual things like that. And um, when I was looking for a house in London, when my daughter wanted to move down here about 
15 years ago now, um, I met some estate agents who just dealt in waterside property and they said there's a houseboat come up for sale and I said buy it. And they said, when okay. would you like to see it? And I said, no, just buy it. <laughs> and I bought it sight unseen and um, did it up and I've lived here ever since and it's a, it's a secret. Don't tell anyone, okay. but it's a very, very nice place to live. Right. I think you told everyone at the start, but we'll, we'll have to edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned your childhood there and actually having listened to a few interviews with you, it seems a lot of your entrepreneurial drive and passion comes from your childhood days. What were you like as a boy? Well, I, I think it's the same with, with everybody. Yeah. I was just telling you a story about Alan Klein, who was the Beatles manager at one mm. point, and he was brought up in an orphan. And he said, I have never, ever forgotten it. And I think it's true to say I've never really forgotten my, you know, childhood and everything. Mm. And I think we were sort of, what it seemed to me, I mean, lots of different things, but I think we were slightly the poor relations in our extended family. And so there was a bit of grit in my oyster that I wanted to prove myself. And, you know, famously, I used to tell people that I was going to be a millionaire by the time I was 20. Okay. You know, and then, of course, I got to 20. It was love and peace at the end of the 60s. Yeah, and I thought, I well, I'll put it off till I'm 30. <laughs> you know. And what were you like at school? Were you rebellious? Were you the joker? Yeah, I was the joker. Yeah. I was the rebel. Um, I ended up getting two O levels, you know, GCSEs, and um, yeah, I was, I, and I was, um, you know, I didn't really participate very okay. much. <laughs> Aside from a millionaire, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Actually, my dad was in the army, and my early ambition was to be in the navy because I liked the boats and all of that. That's been one of my passions, and. Um, I don't think I ever really did know what I wanted to do. And I left Marlborough when I was uh, 16. I uh, went out into the wide world. The um, end of the 60s, the Beatles had just launched Sgt. Pepper's. The Doors' first album had just come out. There was rebellion in the air. There was love and peace in California. It was a very, very exciting time to live. And we thought we were going to change the world. I went out to the world. And after a couple of halcyon years, I thought my dad's right. And having a bit of money coming in does all the wheels of life. And I, people said, you know, you should do something that you love. And I really couldn't think of anything to do with work that I loved other than rock and roll. So I went on the road really as a roadie, putting okay. the lights up in the early days of the rock shows. And I'd worked in the theatre a little bit before then. And I used to tell the bands at the time but what they should be doing is doing big sort of spectacular shows like Busby Perky mm. the films in the 1920s and um, you know they, they, those days they said no man no 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 this is this is because in those days there was showbiz and rock and roll and never the okay. twain shall meet yeah. and after a while they did meet and I became a set I remember telling somebody uh, you know I got a gig to do a big show for Rod Stewart and one for Moody Blues and Nobody else knew how to get stages done in those days. And I'd driven the band for Richmond Theatre, so mm. I knew the way to the people who did the drapes and the rostrums and all of that. And I did this stage for Rod Stewart. And um, I remember being at a dinner thing a few months later, and somebody said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a stage designer. Wow. And, you know, that's, just that's, like that. And it just sort of happened, yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, and it was an invention. It was the beginning of a new industry. Yeah. And... You know, man, there was nightmares getting things done, you know. I can imagine. Ideas, we've had them since, this is a poem by Felix Dennett, since Eve first met Adam, <laughs> but take it from me, execution's the key. Right. And <laughs> building those things was very different. Yeah. Difficult in those days. But I, it's I think grown that, up now. That scene in Spinal Tap when they, there's a set designer and they get the dimensions wrong on 
Stonehenge or something. I'm I was there. This. You were there. I mean, I was in Spinal Tap. I've <laughs> well, seen you? all of that. I've even done exactly what they did in Spinal Tap when they got the scale wrong. Yeah, inches and, instead and, of feet. And, and inches instead of feet. And the, <laughs> and the Stonehenge came out very small. I did a show years ago. I haven't told anybody this story for many years. For Thin Lizzy. Okay. And just before we sort of got it built, I thought, oh, they're not big enough. They were these sort of lighting things that hung over the stage. And... Um, I, I changed the scale and we made them much bigger. And when they arrived, they, these things were absolutely enormous. They could hardly fit in the truck and they wheeled them out. And Phil Linnett came out and said, oh, man, he said, they're great. Right. I didn't think they were going to be so big. <laughs> OK, so size matters sometimes. It worked more. for me on that case. I got away with it. <laughs> OK, fine. So what did you do after, uh, after the rock and roll? What was next? Uh, Theatre was first, then rock and roll lighting, then staging design, and then I lost my way. Um, I did, uh, we did, our company did Live Aid, the shows for Live Aid in 1985, and I remember getting to that point, and suddenly the rock business had kind of grown up, and I remember, I'm sure none of your listeners will ever have had this experience, but I remember thinking to myself, you know, I've got to get out of this business before I get found out. Okay. And looking back... I'm very proud of what I did in those days because I did lots and lots of one-off builds, really, of, of creative things, show business that went out. Um, but that was how it was at the moment. And I got lost and I spent a year in the wilderness and then I got together with a guy I knew from the television business in Los Angeles. Sounds terribly glamorous, but he started buying television rights to rock music shows in the days before videos even. Mm. There people starting to record live concerts. And we started selling them to TV stations for late night broadcast, you know, very low cost because there was no dubbing involved. Yeah. And that grew into a much, much bigger business. And we did the Amnesty International shows and the Nelson Mandela shows when Nelson Mandela came out of prison. Big, big rock spectacles and sold them to TV stations around the world. And actually, it was a very uncreative business. And my thing is sort of creativity, I mm. suppose. But, it's, but I, I did learn how business worked. I remember going to one of the TV festivals the first time. And we all end up sort of at the tables talking about these things. And I said, you know, somebody was telling me about a documentary they were selling. And I said, well, what's it about? And he said, well, what's that got to do with it? You know, it's got this person in it and this person in it. And this, we've raised the money. You know, we've got we've raised seventy five percent of the money. We're just now looking for the other seventy five percent. That was the joke <laughs> in those days. How old were you then? I suppose I was in my late twenties. Um, no, early thirties, I'd say, because I just got married. And um, I used to wear a suit. I had my hair slicked back. I used right. to um, put a match in the end of a cigar and chew on it and go to parties and lean over people's shoulders and go, I love the last movie, you know. I mean, okay. glamorous way of doing it. But I was, yeah, playing, yeah. I was playing a part. And actually, I married a girl while playing that part. Didn't, <laughs> well, work, didn't she, work out in the end. Okay. She's the mother of my child, a very good friend today. But, it but she fell for the role, not the... She, she definitely went for the role. I remember her saying to me a few years later, she said, she said, I thought, you know, I honestly thought she knew everything. And now I know that a lot of it you just made up. Okay, well, so it works, but maybe it's not a plan for ever. No, it's not a plan for life. So were you in the, I can picture you in the kind of big power suits and two-tone shirts and was it kind of That's Wall what Street I did, yeah, dressing? that was it. But what I learnt, what, I, what was very, very good is I learnt um, contracts, I learnt international business, I learnt that you can translate the lessons that you learn in any business, the small businesses that I've had before that, into much, much bigger businesses. Mm. I learnt that if you deal in much larger sums of money, 
it's still the same amount of work as dealing in small amounts of money so always to be ambitious and always to think big um, and I met people in different worlds in yeah. different countries and it was a very very good education for me seven years I spent in that and then you decided that that wasn't quite what you wanted to do. Well, no, it wasn't. My life's never been that planned. There was, you know, it went wrong again. You okay. Know, it what went happened? Wrong. Well, I think I got found out. You know, I had the same thing. No, I, you know, I burnt a few bridges, and um, and you know, looking back on it, it was a pretty difficult time. You know, that was the time I was. I went through some depression, and I was down. I couldn't see a way through through the world. And I was running out of money, I just got divorced, so I had even less money, I was starting to run out of money, I didn't have any income coming in, and I thought I have to do something. There was sort of deep down inside me, there was a kernel still left there of ambition that I wanted to do something, or, or survival actually, to yeah. tell you the truth. And um, I went on a few of those personal development courses. I went on an Anthony Robbins, who's a very, very good motivational speaker from yeah. America, incredible guy actually. And, you know, I was always very cynical about those. And I went on one of those and I came out of it having done the fire walk. You know, you walk yeah, of the length of a cricket yeah. pitch on barefoot in the fire. And I came out and he had this thing about setting goals. And so I got all my goals set up and I had them all laminated and set up. And this is what I was going to do. And I didn't, only half believed it. And one of them I recorded on my uh, Walkman at the time, pre-CD player, to the back to the music. And I actually recorded my goals and I put them on my headphones and I went running in Hyde Park and I'd never run more than a mile in my life and I ran around the perimeter of Hyde Park which is five miles all the okay, way around yeah, yeah. and I got to the end absolutely sweating this tune in my head and me saying what my goals were and I got to the gate and I choked up I couldn't believe that I'd run five miles and I remember this moment thinking if I can do that I can do anything incredible and that's when I went out to start Yo Sushi so how did Yo Sushi come about then so um after that Anthony Robbins thing, I'd been looking at lots of different um, businesses. I'd kept a notebook. I had I was living on very, very little money, trying to spend very little. I had a tiny bit of income coming in from a residual. And um, I was going to do, in, I was a clean on mountaineering, so I was going to do indoor rock climbing walls at one time. I had lots of ideas on the go, all written down in my book. And I knew a guy from the TV business. And my dad always used to say, go out and ask people's advice. It's amazing who will give you advice if you actually go out and ask people. Mm. And if you're really prepared to listen, I always say, if you're really willing to listen, I'm sort of holding my ear as I speak. You know, it's like wearing x-ray specs. Most of us want already know the answers to the questions we asked. And I used to went and asked lots of people what they thought I could be good at. And um, I went and asked a guy called Mr. Uahara, who was the president of Fuji Sankey Television and actually was the producer of what was then Top of the Pops in Japan, okay. a TV show, which is called Hit Studio Deluxe. Wow. It's not a lot of people know that. That's a great name, Hit Studio Deluxe. Hit Studio That's better Deluxe. than Top of the Pops. That's right. Exactly. It was very good. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he was a very nice guy. And he took me out for a Japanese meal, very kindly of him. And I said, what about sushi? Because I'd lived in California, I liked sushi. And he said there was a long oriental silence. And he looked up out of it and he said, what you should do, Simon, is a conveyor belt sushi bar with girls in black PVC miniskirts, which I never did. But um, I think what he meant, they should be very stylish. And okay. that's when I went out to research it. Wow. So pre-internet, it all centered around the idea of a conveyor belt that existed in in Japan, but no one. Well, had done I found it. out I, from my research, I found out there were two and a half thousand of them in Japan, and they began in the nineteen sixties. And I remember getting these brochures coming through the post in sort of you know brown Japanesey envelopes tied up with bits of Japanesey string, and I opening these brochures in Japanese. 
And then one day I got one in English and at the top it said how to start your own conveyor belt sushi bar. It had names, contacts, phone numbers, drawings, wow. everything you needed on this one piece of sheet of paper. And I could not believe my luck. Incredible. The blueprint for Yosushi. It was a blueprint. Your... It was there, literally in my hands. And I remember holding this uh, brochure, and I, then almost uh, clutching it to my chest and thinking, my God, I hope nobody else who knows about restaurants has seen this before. You know, am I the only one? Have I got a break? And of course, you know, it's that sort of doubt that builds up in your mind that yeah. stops you doing things. And really the battle for me because I've always done startups and new ideas, is, you know, trying to get past that doubting Thomas part of your mind that okay. says it's all going to go wrong and somebody who knows a lot more about it than you would have done it years ago if it was a good idea. Yeah, It's bad enough in your own mind, let alone if you get a whiteboard and you put it up in front of a group of people and then you say, what do you think of this idea? I mean, can you imagine if I said, you know, market research, do you want to eat raw fish off conveyor belts with robots <laughs> serving the drinks or the case of our hotels, do you want to sleep in a seven square meter room with no natural light in airports you're not exactly going to get research saying yes so i'm a real believer in starting new businesses in megalomania okay. do it just for yourself or one person at the very most absolutely drive yourself to make yeah. it happen and don't ask too many people's advice at least if you ask people's advice definitely don't ask them the question do you think i should do it or shouldn't i do it because you know you'll never get anywhere no people are too cautious yeah most people yeah and, and, and why wouldn't they be you know I always say when people ask me why I took so many risks, I don't think I am a particular risk taker. I just don't think I had much choice. You know, I I, I did it out of desperation. Yeah. You know, now I'm a bit more careful. Were there other ideas that weren't your sushi? Were there other things you thought about? Well, the climbing wall, I nearly did. Yeah. And the guy who was going to do it with actually went on to start it and it's done, it's done okay, but... Not as well as I did with Yo Sushi. <laughs> what, what, why did that name? Where did that come from? Yo was, um, um, there was a girl called Lika Siklatira who used to come into my office years ago when I was in the television business. And she used to come in after being out of the rave and you'd say, how are you, Lika? And she'd go, yo! You know, she, you know it, was, it was very rave. It was very black. It was very yeah. New York. It was very edgy in those days. And I got a piece of paper which has got some, lots of names on it somewhere. So, you know, Yo, uh, not Yo, um, Sushi Circus, Sushi Roundabout, all of these things. And then it, in the middle of it, it's just got Yo Sushi. And I just thought it was such a sort of edgy yeah. thing. And I got Mark Norton, who is a, a album cover designer. He's, the, he's actually the only guy who's ever done two um, Rolling Stones album covers because they're such a demanding band. Andy Warhol's the other guy, actually, <laughs> uh, who did two. And, and, and he, I took it to him, this idea of Yo, and he thought it was really good. And so one day, you know, again, pre-graphic sort of design, uh, computer graphic design, he sort of pulled back the piece of cardboard, and there was this Yo on a piece of paper, you know, it looked much the same as it does today. And he said it'd be, it's a background of neon lit Japan, which we just thought was absolutely yeah. hit the nail on the head until we showed it to some Japanese people who sort of sat there with open mouths going, oh no, it's not what we thought. And it turns out that the background, the neon lit Japan was the red light district oh, of okay. Tokyo. That's so that was restaurant. giving slightly the wrong message. <laughs> Incredible. Do you remortgage your house? Is that right to, to finance it? Yeah, I put. Um, I had uh, equivalent of two hundred grand tied up in my house, okay. and I put everything on the line. I um, I put that two hundred grand in. I've got two hundred grand grand from a government loan guarantee scheme. Um, I had about a hundred grand of very expensive leasing from shark leasing people, and I begged, borrowed, and didn't actually steal, but I begged and borrowed from everybody else, and we opened a million dollar restaurant million pound restaurant 
for uh, you know for using for really the 200 grand that I put in for my house. Wow. And it took two years. It was going to take a year. And the second year, it fell apart in the second year. And then I got it back again. All the good things happened in okay. the second year. And we opened. And, you know, they, they were two very exciting years, really. Because, um, I, you know, for 90% of the time, I really believed that it had a good chance of working. I never gave it any more than a good chance you know five percent i thought oh, i've gone the wrong hiding to know i'm going to lose a lot mm. and five percent of course was absolute sheer terror and sleepless nights yeah but we opened and the first week nobody came and the second saturday night i walked out of my little office downstairs and there was a line of maybe 50 meters down the block wow word of mouth we never had any money for marketing so we never did any marketing but word of mouth had gone out it was in soho people had seen this thing going around you know what is this thing you know it's quite quite yeah. big in fact i did do a press release and it said world's largest conveyor belt sushi bar in a land and a culture and a customer landscape where nobody had even heard of a conveyor belt sushi bar that was the thing. Were there? Did you have celebrities at first? Everybody came. Everyone. I don't think Madonna came, but okay. everybody else came. Everybody came. Wow. And you know, I ran around being mine host a little bit and mixing with the stars. But it was it was very 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 exciting. Very very exciting. It was the place to be. It was this sort of icon of the late 90s in London and um, then I got a call from Harvey Nichols who wanted to open one and then from Selfridges and um, you know it was a very exciting time yeah. and, and, and the money was rolling in it was like having a hit record yeah it was like having a hit and then the problem started and okay. I always say that the second album is the hardest one <laughs> so it was a bit like that with absolutely me. I wonder how you felt on that first night when no one really came in did you think that was it yeah I was so desperate for that first 10 days that I got people with those cardboard banners to walk up to... Golf sale. Golf sales, yeah. exactly, <laughs> saying, sushi this way, and of course nobody came. No, that's I, did, I think I did it for a couple of days and I thought, no, no. right, just hold your horses, don't so get So you literally just sat there and waited? Just sat, and the, virtually nobody came in. Oh my God. And then word of mouth went out. Okay. Yeah, it was. People. I mean, we did one clever thing. It was in the middle of Soho. And we covered up the windows and we wouldn't let anybody see what was inside. So they had, had to come had big and see orange you. paper windows on the outside. And it just said things like Kirin beer, robot, conveyor, you know. <laughs> okay. And people didn't know what it was. It could have been anything. Yeah. And then on the day we opened, we took that down. It was brightly lit. We had the conveyor belt there. Where all the chefs, looked, you know, we had robots serving the drinks and speaking. And people came in. It was like, what is this? What is this? Mm. Is it a, a restaurant? Yes, you can come in. <laughs> and of course, one of the big problems is people were very scared. They didn't understand it at all. And people are very conservative. So we had to educate them. Okay. A friend of mine, Sasha Asimi, started Coffee Republic in the days when we used to have polystyrene coffee cups, which cost 50p, and her coffee cost two quid. She brought it over from America, first coffee people over here. And she, the way she describes it is she said, in the end, I decided I would have to talk to every single customer who walked past and educate them one person at a time. Wow. One person at a time. And I think that very often is the way to do it on these startups rather than um, you know, sending yeah. flyers out saying, lovely, yeah. delicious sushi or coffee here. You know, yeah, it doesn't okay. work. You know, I've, I've always got a lot of publicity, but I've got a lot of publicity by talking about things like this and talking about the world and life and everything. 
because as soon as you say my product is really good and the atmosphere is really good and it's you know everybody's going to say that nobody's going to believe that you've got yeah. to you've got to really have a vision and a story like listening to your favorite band you know there's always a backstory to every band of which fascinates you so tell us about the difficult second album then so the second album really was we opened um, Selfridges and Harvey Nichols. The money was flowing in and uh, I was running the business. So the money was flowing right back out again. So basically, I needed to get somebody in to run the business properly. I mean, I got it up to three, four restaurants. Um, and that is a really, really hard thing to do. And that's where most people fail. Um, and then I met Robin Rowland through a recruitment agency. I knew I needed a really good operations manager. He came in as operations manager. He'd never been an MD of anything before. <coughs> and he was ambitious. And I said, you know, it's a long story. It wasn't quite that easy. But I said, why don't you take over and run it? Wow. In fact, what happened, he said, you're an absolute inspiration, Simon. Without you, nobody could have, very few people could have done what you've done but you're also a disaster because you change your mind all the time. And actually to run a business, you need to have a process-driven thing. And I realized that he was right. And that's what a lot of entrepreneurs don't do. So I really handed it over to Robin to run and he built the business out and uh, followed in my footsteps and got an OBE from it, two OBEs for the Osushi, and um, built it up. And then at about um, restaurant eight or 10, something like that, we um, sold to a venture capitalist. Mm -hmm. To a first, I sold part of my shares and then I sold again at 20 restaurants and so on. I sold bits as we went along. And um, yeah, no, famously, I, Robin really led the cavalry charge on the first first time we made a sale. Which is what whatever, but you know, because you build those businesses, those small businesses, they're they're like a pack of mm. cards, you know, a house of cards, if you like. You blow and they could go over. And so the relief of selling was absolutely enormous. And I remember standing in the lawyer's office and suddenly these lawyers who'd been absolutely awful people turned into quite friendly people. They broke open the champagne. We ordered a few drinks and they, they told me that the money would be in my bank account. And I didn't, I hadn't even planned where to put the money. So I, in those days we had checkbooks. I pulled my checkbook out, gave them the sort code and the current account number. And they said it'll be in the bank account in 20 minutes. And I remember walking home down Oxford Street, passing the ATM machine and thinking, oh after a couple of glasses of champagne, thinking I'm going to have a check, make sure it's there. And I remember opening this thing up and there was a sum of money, which was more than I'd ever had by a very, very long way in my life. You know, I wasn't super rich, but I was out of the trenches. Yeah. And it was absolute relief. And I stood there for so long looking at this ATM machine. There was a queue form behind me. There was this bloke coughing and spluttering behind me. And I did turn around to him. I said, excuse me, mate. I said, copper, look at this. Oh, no. And um, <laughs> I can tell you all listening that if anybody tells you money doesn't make you happy, they're lying. <laughs> what did you do for the rest of that day? Can you talk about it? <laughs> it was it was a new landscape. Knowing me, I probably went back and sat down planning what I was going to do next. Okay. Yeah, knowing me. Um, and, you know, I, I had sort of wondered, you know, I'd always opened one restaurant hoping that I could survive, but secretly hoping that I could build a brand. The brand, the brand word had just started coming in. I always equated it to bands, actually, because I'd been around bands and I'd seen how they'd grown and a very similar thing in many ways, you know, showbiz, hospitality, showbiz, not so far away, you know, the first night of a show, first night of opening a restaurant. And um, I thought about all the other things I could do with Yo. And so from the first day of Yo, 
I'd had a difficult, I own 90% right at the very beginning, and I had a very difficult investor who didn't want me to, was worried about how much money I was going to pay myself. So I said, look, I'll just take a royalty, take a 1% royalty, and that's all I'll pay. And he was very happy. And I had that royalty set in place. And when I sold the business, I sold it with the royalty. So when I eventually sort of walked away and let Robin run the whole business, and I no longer had control, I had the royalty coming. And of course, in those days, it wasn't very much. And over the years, it's now 100 restaurants, it's grown, and it's been, been, been... been the juice really which has allowed me to sort of start to build other things so I started looking at other things and I'd kept the uh, broken the yo brand down and the sushi had the hospitality area well the, the food and beverage area and I'd kept hotels out of it and Kaha and all these other things so I started looking at what a hotel would be and started with a, as I as is my want I'm happiest with a piece of paper a scale rule or a CAD drawing yeah. and just working out and starting to put a plan together and then getting people involved and finding out who would be involved and getting people excited about it and that's what I started doing with the hotel and we um we we built a polystyrene mock-up of a very very small hotel room but i was going to do japanese capsule hotels okay which uh, jamie palumbo from ministry of sound he was going to do them as well we talked about it and and then in the end i sort of ended up doing a slightly bigger version okay. of that and uh, we built one and actually we built this polystyrene model in our car park and we all went in it and went oh it could be smaller Fine. So you know that was good, and so now the the hotel business is 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 we're up to I believe we're up to fourteen hotels now. We have twenty one by the end of next year, and they're big hotels. You know, four hundred, five hundred, seven hundred rooms. Yeah, but we do uh, because they're a small and beautiful rooms, and they have a bed that deploys in the same way that uh, first class does on the airlines. Uh, we can get uh, small rooms, but with all full star luxury we can get twice as many rooms into a given space as any other hotel operator. So we're very desirable. If you're a property owner somewhere in the world and you want to build a hotel, we're very desirable. We can get a better return than anybody else can. So I started to build that business. Um, I actually sold my controlling interest in it off a prototype before we built the first one at Heathrow and Gatwick. Well, around the time we did that, yeah. So that's been my formula, really, is to... um, is to have ideas, get them up and running, prove them at some level, mm. and um, then get in people who are good at operating and rolling out such concepts. You know, find out what you're good at, and spend 90% of your time doing what you're good at. I'm good at starting things, having ideas, okay. getting them going, and then publicizing them and talking about them. Yeah. It seems to me, actually, in that way, you were kind of precursor to lots of restaurants we have nowadays that find a gimmick that looks good on social media or something. Um, or something that a point of difference and then kind of running with it not always with with good results do you think we've lent too much now on kind of novelty and and new things i think that i'm always amazed that yeah people have novelty but there's nobody who does things really radically and i'm always looking for something that's radical but with substance so um, the new one I've got going on at the moment has been going for a while now called Yo Home mm. is these transformer homes. So the interiors are, you know, one room transforms from a sitting room to a bedroom to a, to a party room to a kitchen to a dining room. And so your, your, um, your bedroom is an entire space and feels like a bedroom. But when it transforms into your sitting room, it's the entire face feels like a sitting room. Not for everybody, but it's a transformer room. And I think, it's, you know, we'll do very, very well with those. But we've also got a building system which um, which can be built anywhere in the world and transported on on containers, low cost containers, and um, and we can build buildings cheaper than anybody else and faster. Build them in days rather than in years, 
And so that's the next thing I've, I'm doing. And um, um, got a few more <laughs> up my sleeve. Okay. I've read about one of your projects called Yotopia. Is this something that's ever come to fruition? Well, Yotopia is, is the one that I promised that I wouldn't sort of publicize, but the Daily Mail got hold of it. I don't think they even <laughs> knew it was called Yotopia. Um, I've had a project for a long time to do floating islands because I live in a floating home here yeah. in London and I wanted to do a floating resort so that more people, you know, rich people have private islands and I wanted to do floating private islands. You go into a bay and you look, oh, that looks like a real island, but actually it's a wow. manufactured one in a factory. And so I was in the Bahamas um, sailing and I thought this is the perfect place. It's very, very easy to get to and I'll do floating islands here. And then the estate agent persuaded me to buy an island. So you've bought an island? Oh, I have bought an island. I'm okay, afraid. you I've say that with some remorse. Well, <laughs> like starting a restaurant, it's a stupid thing to do. A lot of fun, but it's a <laughs> stupid like thing great to do. Fun. Yeah, but at least you go into it knowing that it's stupid. And so I bought an island, mm -hmm. and rather than develop the floating islands at the outset, um, I got <laughs> obsessed with building the islands and, and figuring out how to do it. And in fact, what we're going to do is I'm building... Um, I'm using the technology of African tented safari camps to build a glamping nature resort on a safari camp, on a desert oh, okay. island in the Bahamas. Wow. Which is a pretty interesting formula. It's much cheaper than building right. real buildings, but the perceived value of staying on a camping, a very, very glamorous yeah. air-conditioned camping site on a most spectacularly beautiful area of course. Uh, with water all around you is um, is got a high perceived value. Yeah. Did you see that documentary about Fire Festival? Well, I think that I'll do Fire Festival on our island. But actually, do it properly. It okay. Yeah, but probably do it for less people than that. Yes, less people. But, but, but absolutely do that and put them in the most luxury tents. And then Fire, F Y R E, yes. that movie, will have done all the publicity for me. Exactly. All I have to do is say, this is the real thing. The real Looks fire like Fire. Festival. Thank you very much. Exactly. And there's be a movie about what I'm going to do. Be. What would it be called? Yo Fire. Yo's on fire. Yeah, Yo's on that. fire. Good thinking. It came here. You heard okay, it here good. first. Well, we'll be the first press to cover it, hopefully. You got it. And everyone will want you to fail, and then when you don't, it's going to be a great no, story. I think, I think they'll want us to succeed. Okay, I hope so. I don't know. It's, you know. There's a very good... It's a funny thing with entrepreneurs and success. I mean, when I was growing up, people did want you to fail, but most people now want you to succeed. It's, it's interesting. Wow. It's a good attitude that we have. I think that the resentment towards people who go out and do things, I mean, there's a good for you, yeah. mate, attitude now. Whereas who do you think you are used to be the okay. attitude. So I think the, us Brits are in a pretty That's good position. Good. Yeah, more American, more positive. Yeah, here we are in, what are we, 2020. Boris has just got in. Um, you know, I think there is. When I went to do the, the B word, you know, when I went to make my vote, my hand hovered over it because I knew that it didn't matter whether I said yes or no because it would work out both ways. And, you know, this is the way it's worked out. So we go with it and make we'll the most out. of it. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we won't find out. It'll, we'll never... You know, people always go, in the end, you know, in the last resort. But there never is a last moment. Yeah. It's always ongoing. And whatever decision you make in life, you can change it later on. So it doesn't matter what decision you make in many ways. What's important is you carry on making decisions. You try and make as few mistakes as you can, but you carry on making decisions. Yeah. So what other areas then are, are ripe for disruption? What's Yo going to go into? Well, I don't know. I mean, look, I haven't had all successes. I had um, Yo Japan, the clothing range, which mm -hmm. was there for three years. That failed. Uh, we, or we closed it down. We had Yo Below Bars, 
which was pretty cool. You know, we had that's where we had the self-serve beer. Every table had a self-service beer. Spent a third of a pint. You helped yourself. People had competitions, <laughs> and we had smoke extracting ashtrays. Wow! Um, in the days when people used to smoke. That's I pretty clever. I told the Times newspaper one day, they said, whatever next? I said, well, when they legalize marijuana, we're going to extract all the smoke into a special room and charge people to go in there and call it Yo to Blow. <laughs> so that, that not headline yet. was Yo Goes to Pot. <laughs> no, it's not something I'm going to do. But it okay. was, it was, it, it was, you know, it attracted attention and it was funny and it was yeah. interesting, you know. And um, Yo Zone is the other one that has some publicity, which is my concept for a spa. Okay. Um, you know, for a spa, but but you know, a spa that's close to a nightclub at times, dancing by the pool. But again, you're a perfect example. If you did market research on that, put that up on a whiteboard with yeah. But you can't have dancing by the pool. What happens if people slip? You've got to get health and safety, this that, and the other. But you have to go for it. And if you have one mind doing it, yeah. you go. That's what we're going to do. We'll figure out a way of doing it. We will get the floor right to get it right. You seem to have a, a kind of a flair for publicity naturally, and that comes from from your probable tastes and interests? I don't know if it's publicity. Yeah. I kind of like to talk about what I'm doing because I'm enthusiastic about it. And I suppose instinctively I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what people think. But I think if you, just, if you just talk about how good you are or how great this is or that is, I think people today are interested in the world and life and everything of what it is to be a human being on earth trying to do the best you can in the short span that we have here yeah. i think people are deep and meaningful actually i mean not all of us but you know people have an interest in the world of course and actually um i think it was mick jagger of all people used the expression which was vulnerability with dignity wow and, you know, we all think that if we're terribly clever and together and this, that and the and other... ironic and sarcastic. That, that, yeah, that, that people are going to admire this. Actually, I'm drawn towards people's vulnerability. If yeah. somebody says, you know, I'm really struggling and going through a hard time, you know, you one warms to them. You know, look at this Philip this Schofield. Is it Philip Schofield? Yeah. Schofield, Schof, they call The Schof, yeah. Look, the whole nation has come out in support <laughs> of, of him. It's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that is true of a lot of things as well. What a great way the world's changed in that respect. Well, that's brilliant. You must have lots of young, ambitious people coming to you for advice. Is there one piece of advice you give them? No, it changes depending on the day of the week, really. Okay, that's probably wise. Yeah. It's probably best yeah. to be case. But you know, we it, there is not there's not you know there's very few truths. There's very few truths. Best one is that poem I started reading you, which is Felix Dennis, which goes, I'll tell you, you gave him the whole thing now, it's only a few verses. Ideas, we've had them since Eve first met Adam, but take it from me, execution's the key. Good fortune, the truth is, the harder you work, the more that you sweat, the luckier you get. The money, go find a likely investor to get what you need, you toadies to greed. The talent, Go find it, but first wine and dine it. It's tedious work with a talented jerk. To win it, you've got to be in it, but never be late to quit and cut bait. Expansion is vanity. Profit is sanity. Overhead begs and it walks on two legs. The first step, just do it. And bluff your way through it. Remember to duck. Godspeed and good luck. And Brilliant. you'll all be asking, who, where can I find that? And it's Felix Dennis, who wrote a book called How to Get Rich. Yeah. And that's the poem. The publisher. Called, the publisher. Yeah. That's the poem called How to Get Rich. <laughs> Says it all right. I think we should just begin every podcast with that now. <laughs> or maybe just do that once a fortnight. <laughs> <laughs>
Before you go, Simon, I want to ask you questions about you, even though I sure. think you've told us a lot about you already. Um, we ask these to everyone, but we hope you're as honest as possible. Okay. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't doing yo? Um, I think that 20 years ago, it could have gone very wrong, and I could have been a very resentful and angry man, um, jealous man of other people. And I think I'm very lucky that this I got this break because it's made me, you know, it served me well. So you think you would just be an unhappy person? I could have been. I, I often wonder if yeah. I would have been resentful and, you know, and blaming of other people or whether I would have dusted myself up and got back and got on the horse again. I think the last maybe I think maybe yeah. I would have done, yeah. Hope so. Are you natu- glad I don't have to find no, out. No, exactly. Are you naturally disposed towards happiness or unhappiness, do you think? I'm glass half full, man. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. But What's I've sh- suffered. Yeah. You know, to be a great blues singer, they say you have to have had the blues. And I think to be able to, um, you know, understand human beings and people, which is what this is all about. Business is all about, I think, anyway. And teams, you've got to have been through the mill a bit yourself. Otherwise, Absolutely. you can't understand people. It's like any artist, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, what's the most impressive thing you can cook? Um, I'm very good at arranging things. I, do, I, cook, I, cook, I cook a mean fish pie. Okay. Um, Julie, who works for me here, um, does most of the cooking. Um, but I'm really good at arranging things. I'm good at arranging a table. I'm good at presenting things on plates, like sushi. Okay. And yes. um, I'm good at throwing dinner parties and making people feel comfortable. And um, I like doing that. What are you most proud of in your career? What am I most proud of in my career? Well, I suppose two things really. One is I'm still here and I'm still going at the age of 68, you know, and, uh, you know, it's great. It's fantastic. I'm still doing interesting things. And I'm not quite sure how I started Joe Sushi in 1997, that two years living on nothing. I, I don't know how I did it. And I'm really proud of that yeah. young man, mid 40s actually, who did that. Really proud of him. What's really your biggest failure, do you think? You know, I've not had any really big business failures, but I think if I went back and lived my life again, I was pretty aggressive at times, not Mm. always nice to people. Um, I don't think I was the worst, you know, I don't think I was awful, but I've had that conversation with quite a few successful people and they hold their head in their hands in shame and go, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. (laughs) I I used to come into work and people would go, how was your weekend? And I think to myself, what has that got to do with anything? <laughs> now I come in and say to people, how was your weekend? I still think, what's that got to do with anything? Yeah, that's small talk. Yeah. That's it's useful. It is. It's important. It definitely, definitely. Yeah, of course. Spend time with people. Form yeah. bonds. In Japan, they have a word for it called nemawashi. And nemawashi is the ability to form rapport with people. So in a one-hour business meeting you spend 40 minutes forming rapport wow. and once you've got the rapport it's easy to make decisions and help yeah. each other and then you go to the karaoke yeah. bar and get drunk well there's that as well yeah <laughs> never wash it i remember that this is a, a sideways move but uh i was meant to ask you about dragon's den because you were one of the sure. first ever dragons on it i was in the first series yes, and yet you true. didn't decide to continue uh, is this well, one no, of your I, I think there was a mutual parting of the ways. Actually, okay. I was I was all for them being more positive, and they wanted it to be X Factor and, right. and, and get crap people on yeah. and, and all that. 
And I think they also wanted to change dragons along the way. So I, I went off. It was a very, very good thing to do, a fantastic thing to do. Yeah. And I really enjoyed doing it. And I really enjoyed doing the first series because we didn't know what was going to happen. We were absolute pioneers. And I remember the show coming out and it got enormous attention straight yeah, it was away. Huge. You know, and people would come up to you on the street and go, oh, that's great. And I remember phoning all the other dragons and asking them, what, you know, or Peter said, what do you think of my performance? So the thing I always tell people is that, you know, what, if you remember about Dragon's Den, it's not five people thinking this was going to be a good investment here. They're sitting there thinking, well, how's my performance today? Yeah. And I asked Duncan Bannantyne, I said, what do you think of it? And he said, oh, he says... Uh, he said, uh, they recognize me on the street. He said, I fucking love it. <laughs> okay, that says something about Duncan. Are you still friends with all of them? I am. No, no, no I don't see many of them. Duncan, I'm a friend of. I saw Peter the other day. Um, but no, not particularly. <laughs> if you could learn... No, I, mean, I, I, I yeah, say of not course, particularly, not the... no. I am. I yeah, am, of course, I not am, in a bad I'm way. I'm all friends with all of them, sure. yeah. But um, no, I don't particularly hang around with them. Yeah. What phrase would you like to banish from the earth? I try to not to use buzzwords at all and use sort of nursery words in the letters I write. Nursery words? Well, just human, very human, human, basic words, not use any. And if anybody says to me, um, you know, some complicated word, I always ask them what it means. And honestly, sometimes even if I know what it means, I'll ask them, you know, just to share them up. And then I make them up sometimes. I say, (laughs) say, um, that is a really good VGF. And they, uh, and then you know you'll hear. I even heard somebody repeat it back one yeah. time. A VGF, the VGFs are brilliant you know, on these. No, you know, and then occasionally <laughs> somebody will say, "What's a VGF?" And I'll say, okay. it's, "It's a very good thing." Okay, <laughs> good. Well, they're important. Very good things. Uh, if you could be one age forever, what would you want to be? I really like getting older. I mean, that is a mad thing to say, but the just the it was uncomfortable being me most of my life. And now I feel comfortable. You know, 55 was the year I realized, here's a warning for all of you out there, call to action, carpe diem. 55 was the year that I realized that life didn't go on forever. Okay. So live for today. Um, And I like being the age that I am now. And pretty much, yeah, it's good. It's more comfortable being me than it's ever been. You know, helped by money, no doubt. Helped by being more comfortable with myself, being yeah. a nicer person, all of those things, having more friends. Yeah, that's very encouraging. Yeah. What is your most treasured possession? Um, I, I, there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing in the world that I would mind losing okay. as a possession. And I've worked really hard at that. I mean, I love my houseboat here, but I often do think about it. If it sank or something went wrong, I'd do something else. Yeah. There's no piece of clothing, there's no car... Um, there's no kind of little accoutrement that I'm mm. terribly fond of. You know, I, I do like things. I've got a few little things around, but but no, there's nothing. And I think that's a good way to travel through life. Don't yeah. you know, try and be a human being, not a human doing, and try and get not get too attached to things. What book has influenced you the most? Um, Seven Years in Tibet, Heinrich Harrer, The White Spider, which is a climbing book. Um, my friend Joe Simpson's Touching the Void. Yeah. Um, Bernard Monte- Pellier Montessier sailing around the world in the 60s. You know, adventure books. You know, Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The Contiki Expedition. I mean, that's all the stuff that I grew up with. Yeah. And I still, to this day, if I just want to relax, I'll pick up a, 
an adventure book about mountains or adventure or exploration. Absolutely fantastic. And of course, the whole of the earth has been explored now. So now I'm starting to get interested in what the next generations will be doing okay. and the exploration of spaces. Wow. You know, and I can really see how the... I, I'm sure, I don't know if it's in my lifetime, but certainly in my daughter's lifetime, that there will be people who decide, like Captain Cook went off to sail down past all the capes through Africa. They didn't know what was over the next horizon, whether they'd come to the edge of the world, all that business, or some of the Vasco da Gama certainly yeah. didn't. And um, in the same way, I'm sure that there'll be young people who'll get on a, a spaceship knowing that they'll never return to Earth because they want to go off on the great adventure of their life and Incredible. travel through space. And will you do this? I, I, I never understood. Do you understand how the sun is burning up and having nuclear explosions? And yet, and the, the sun, why doesn't it just finish at some Burn point? Out. And so I looked it up and the Earth is 8,000 miles across. But the sun is 123,000 million miles across. Wow. And it is a very small sun. Yeah. And every star in the Milky Way is either a sun or a planet. And in fact, the biggest ones, if you got in a 747, it would take a million years to fly around it. Wow. So, you know, I mean, we're talking about the most greatest adventure on Earth, and it's about to start happening. And yeah. I do believe that that will all happen now. It's just the beginning of it. Yeah. Very exciting. Very, I mean, that's very the exciting. only reason I'd like to live a bit longer. But at least in my imagination, I can imagine yeah. that stuff. My favorite um, headline of the future is the imaginary Tesco bankrupt after cost of teleportation falls below one rupee. <laughs> you know, probably no... It probably may happen one it day. It may well happen. We hope so. The trouble is that we all thought, you know, it's all been done. Everest yeah. has been climbed and this, that and the other. But then the, pl the landscape changes. And it's the same with business. You know, I thought, oh, God, I could never have started Yo Sushi because of all the regulation and ordinance and everything that you have to do today. Mm. Um, and in my day, it was just us and Pret and yeah. Nando's and Wagamama. And, you know, there was not much competition. So, um, you know, but... You know, if I'd been born in this day and age, well, look, I'm still doing stuff. Of course. I'm just looking at something up here. And finally, what's your uh, your personal motto? Are you, are you finding it now? Success is never owned. It's rented. And the rent is due every day. That's very good. Excellent. Simon, thank you so much.